podcast newscast. It's Colette, Tom and Paul here and we have a particularly good newscast itinerary for you today, mainly because Tom and Paul agreed to indulge me in a discussion about the four lads in jeans team and their peg for UK number one sea shanty hit. We're very social media orientated today as we'll be covering the rules for MPs on social media, WhatsApp's change in terms and conditions, deep fakes and a potential case against TikTok misuse of children's data. Let's start with the MPs on social media. This week, Lydia McPherson released a Twitter thread that exposed a number of MPs who had blocked constituents on social media for asking difficult questions. Nick Hillman raised the important point that no one is obliged to be on social media, and in a climate where MPs are routinely abused and trolled, blocking should be a readily available option. Paul, I'm going to come to you to start with on this, because I think this speaks a lot to the employee social media conundrum that we've spoken about on the pod before, Um, but perhaps slightly more exaggerated because these employees do have public office. Do you think MPs should be on social media? And if so, how do we go about governing behaviour? Yeah, I think what this this story uh, highlights is... um... Uh, a, a kind of disconnect in a way between um, uh, what we what we think uh, MPs uh, should do and how we um, uh, how we think we can treat them um, and uh, and so in that sense I have a lot of sympathy for what um, uh, Nick Nick Hillman was saying because, Actually, we know that uh, many MPs um, have faced um, horrendous abuse uh, online. Um, some of this abuse has been reported to the police and individuals have been prosecuted. I'm thinking especially of of the MPs, uh, the female MPs who suffered horrendous abuse um uh, over the uh, over the change uh, to currency wanting um uh, a female uh, to be on the what was it five pound note or ten pound note? Um, I, I I think that the the key issue this raises though is about uh, codes of conduct. What it is that MPs uh, should uh, or should not do uh, on um, social media and the circumstances in which uh, they should be able to block um, their constituents. And uh, for me, the the answer to that has to be um, that all MPs are entitled to work in a safe environment. They're entitled to work uh, in an environment in which they are not threatened and they are not um, uh, subject to uh, abuse uh, and intimidation. Um, And in those circumstances, I think it's perfectly right for them to, to exclude uh, individuals who who abuse uh, them and abuse uh, social media uh, in this way. So I, I I don't have a problem with MPs blocking uh, constituents um, if they feel that those constituents are being uh, aggressive or threatening or anything like that. The problem is a lack of transparency, of course, over the circumstances in which uh, these individuals have been blocked. Now, the person who, who uh, started this thread, Lydia uh, McPherson, uh, uh, proudly uh, claims on her um, Twitter site to have been blocked by her MP. 
she doesn't say anything about the the circumstances. Um, so I think that's something that calls for uh, greater transparency. Tom, do you have anything to pick up on? No, really, I agree with Paul. Um, MPs use Twitter as a communication tool and they are entitled, like any other person, to use it in the way that is most advantageous to them. They don't have to use it um, to publicise themselves and then sit there and take whatever abuse they get. Uh, Like anybody else, they can... Uh, use it for self-aggrandizement and then block anybody who disagrees with them. Um, If Twitter does not prevent them from doing so, I don't really see that there's anything um, that in legal terms anybody else can really complain about. It's not like constituents have no access to their MP. Uh, MPs still have parliamentary mailboxes. They still have their email inboxes. You can get in touch with your MP in a variety of ways um, in in terms of written communication. Um, And, you know, once upon a time when we were all allowed out of our homes, you could go and see them in their constituency surgeries. Of course, that's not open at the moment. But I, I think it's important to remember that when an MP blocks a constituent on Twitter, that constituent is not then prevented from having any voice at all. Uh, And the availability of blocking on social media is an important tool to guard against abuse. Will some people use it overzealously? Yes, of course they will. You'll find plenty of politicians that simply shut down views they disagree with. Um, But you'll find that in any profession. Um, You know, you'll find that, you know, if a hotel, if somebody says something unfavorable about a hotel on Twitter, they might well end up blocked and their tweets deleted. Um, that's that's part and parcel of social media and i think it behooves us as uh, a a public of social media users um to be aware that what we're going to see on politicians twitter feeds is not a full range of opinion necessarily but a range of opinion that the politician in question finds acceptable and thinks deserves to remain there um, and, and what we really need is a broader program of education around social media usage um, so that uh, users of social media get uh, consciously get themselves exposed to a range of different perspectives when it comes to, um, to, to politics. Yeah, so I think that, I mean, the crucial thing to come out of that is that when you are blocked by your MP, this is not the end of your options to get in touch with them. Social media is a more convenient way, but there are plenty of more traditional routes. No. And it is still perfectly possible for a person who's been blocked by their MP on Twitter to go on their own Twitter feed and say, my MP has blocked me, as this individual has done, and to make their point that way. Um, So the MP, you know, if, let's assume arguendo, that the MP acted wholly unfairly in doing this, um, if that's the case... The constituent can use their own Twitter profile to protest it. Yeah, yeah. And, and as a, a recourse against abuse, I think yeah, it is a very important option for MPs, especially in light of, of recent events. Absolutely. Abuse comes from right and left in politics, and it is thoroughly unacceptable, whatever colour. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of online abuse, I, I want to move on to the... Um, deep fakes and the four lads in jeans meme. 
It all started innocently with four fellas getting a cute pre-sesh pic outside an all-bar one in Birmingham, and it has now morphed into a deep fake video in which the group sing an old sea shanty Wellerman a cappella for the internet's pleasure. But in between the night out and the sea shanty, the four lads came to be associated with ignorant and bigoted views during the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020. Memes circulated depicting the men as being outraged at defaced Winston Churchill statues, mocking them for not knowing about the underlying racial inequalities that led to the protests. These memes in no way reflected the four guys' views. Each of the men faced personal attacks and online trolling as a result of these memes. One of the group's work number was made public and he has spoken out about the toll that this took on his mental health. This made me think, what recourse is available if you've been defamed by a meme? And do you think if you can't find the meme maker, is there a role for social media sites to play in instances like this? Well, there certainly is the potential for claims in defamation. It obviously depends on what the meaning is that is derived from the meme in question. Um, but if the meaning is clearly defamatory within the meaning of the law, i.e. something that would uh, cause a right-thinking member of society to think less of the individual uh, and which uh, meets the Section 1 threshold um, of uh, serious harm, then I think there is absolutely the potential for actions in defamation. Um, there have been actions in defamation around the use of images to convey misleading impressions of people for a very long time. You can go right back to the early 20th century case of Tolly and Fry, which anyone who studied defamation will be uh, familiar with. It's not exactly the same on its facts, but it's it, it gets across this principle that uh, an image of a person alongside the endorsement of a particular, in that case, product, but we could... We could uh, replace that with political view. Um, can lead a right-thinking viewer of the image to uh, assume that the individual does in fact endorse that view. Now, where we start to run into difficulties in terms of defamation claims is when we try to work out what a right-thinking Twitter user or social media user thinks. When a person sees something that is a meme, do they... Uh, in their right thinkingness, immediately ascribe to the subject of the meme the viewpoint being expressed. And because social media viral memes of this sort really have come into prominence in only the last few years, we don't have litigation on it. We don't have precedent on it from the courts. But I suspect that where these claims might well struggle uh, in legal terms is where the defense will argue users of social media don't think of memes as conveying true information. Rather, it's a joke. And so what you end up with is a situation like the one that was faced in the court in Stocker and Stocker quite recently. Um, that was to do with the way that posts on Twitter should be interpreted and how seriously they should be taken. Now, that was an entirely text-based um, tweet. But the same problem will arise. How does your average user of social media, your right-thinking user of social media, interpret a meme? Um, so 
yeah, that's the issue. Um, uh, I, I don't have a problem with the idea that associating an individual with those sorts of views is defamatory. The question is, have they been effectively associated with it on social media, given the format that's used? But I think to that, you would say that because they face such personal attacks and online trolling, there clearly is evidence that they, they, they were associated with those views. Except that the problem there is that you'd end up be saying that the the individuals who did interpret it in that way and abused them must be the right-thinking people. And you run quickly into the argument that right-thinking members of society, whatever they think of an individual, do not engage in trolling on social media. So we could, you know, the defense will say you have to discount whatever abuse you get from online trolls, because online trolls, by their very nature, go looking for... They are avid for scandal, to use a phrase that appears in whichever defamation case it appeared in. I forget where the court said that, which is bad. I shouldn't have forgotten that, but I have. But it appears there is, you know, when you the definition of a, a reasonable reader is one who is not avid for scandal, one who is not going looking for controversy. Online, tr- people who are inclined towards trolling online tend to be. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a spectrum, isn't there? Because there's specific websites designed for trolling, which would be your people looking for scandal. And then there are people who quite rightfully get offended by the views that were associated to these men and think, I'm going to say something on my Twitter feed about it. And then they are, they could easily be all right thinking people. If they commented on a uh, a news piece in the Guardian or the Times, then they'd be considered right-thinking people. But just because they're posting on social media, they're in the trolling category. And I think that there's two very different sides to that that trolling spectrum. Yeah, I can see the argument, Paul. So I I agree with Tom on this. I think that the question whether this is defamatory uh, or not really rests on that question of the. Uh, reasonable person and whether they would think that uh, the comments attributed to the meme uh, do in fact refer uh, to uh, these four lads uh, or not or whether they would see that actually uh, the comments on the photograph uh, are two separate things. Do you think there's a role for social media sites to play in um, taking down memes when they have they've become potentially defamatory so you've got cases like Tamiz and google in the past saying that they do have some sort of responsibility is is that due for an update i think that's a good point colette i would say i think it depends if the people affected are asking for the photograph uh, to be taken down there is obviously a role that social media companies should be playing in removing content that refers to individuals when those individuals object to that content, uh, especially if it constitutes the unauthorized use of a picture. Um, where that runs into difficulties is when you try to apply it as a blanket rule. So if a person has put uh, a picture, perhaps unwisely, into the public domain, then they, they will find it difficult to complain that other people have used it. And when one posts something to a public Instagram account, that does tend to happen. There could be um, a potential for copyright claims 
Um, but you know, you run into then lengthy arguments about the fair use doctrine. Um, there is a much broader question here, and one that we don't have time on our newscast to get into, um, to do with um, pictures that are in some cases digitally manipulated, the deep fake style of picture to portray a person as doing a particular thing or saying a particular thing or endorsing a particular idea um, that they have not in fact done and um, the extent to which that is objectionable and the extent to which social media companies should remove it. And the same for uh, pictures that are, are simply put together as this has been, as memes where the picture is put alongside some text that purports to ascribe viewpoints to the subjects of the picture. Um, I think it's very difficult to have a blanket rule on it, but we certainly need to see social media companies having robust policies uh, when it comes to uh, the users being able to complain about posts. Um, and I think it should, ideally, what, what, what the companies should be doing is making transparent what those policies are, what the criteria are going to be, and then everybody will know the rules by which they're playing. That's a vague answer, isn't it? You need policies about it. That's as good as I'm going to get to today. Yeah, and I think, you know, you've touched on a, an interesting point there, Tom, about deep fakes and the, the deep fake pornography element, which is something that... I think could fit as a, a media law podcast episode in and of itself. There's a lot of privacy issues uh, around that. So maybe that's something for another time. Um, but sticking with social media and newscast stories, I also just want to update listeners on a potential TikTok case. This was a legal action that's been brought by a 12-year-old girl who claims that the company is using children's data unlawfully. The action is being supported by Anne Longfield, the Children's Commissioner for England and Wales, who claims that the platform is in breach of the EU's data protection laws. Last month, that's December 2020, Mr Justice Warby granted anonymity to the girl, citing the risk of, and I quote, hostile reactions from social media influencers who might feel their status or earnings are under threat. TikTok has since changed its privacy rules for its youngest users, making all accounts belonging to users aged between 13 and 15 automatically private. Certain features like duets and stitch are now only available to over 16s, and downloading videos made by under 16s will not be allowed. It remains to be seen whether these changes are enough to stave off the legal threats, but as always, we will be following it on newscasts and keeping you up to date. There has also been a change in WhatsApp's privacy conditions, which has caused quite a scandal. Um, Tom, do you want to take this? Yeah, so this is a story that's been in the mainstream press in the last couple of days as we record this. Uh, it seems that WhatsApp has issued its users with notification of a change to its terms and conditions, um, as part of which it has made explicit something that turns out to have been an existing practice of sharing users' data with uh, WhatsApp's parent company, Facebook. Um, all of WhatsApp's news users were apparently notified of these change in terms and conditions, uh, and uh, it was made ex explicitly clear to them, seemingly for the first time, or at least the first time for anyone who'd not read the terms and conditions 
um, before, not looked into what had been going on before, um, that their data was being routinely shared with Facebook. Um, this is data such as the person's name, contact details, phone number, email addresses, IP addresses. So a substantial amount of personal data, certainly the sort of stuff that's covered under the GDPR. Um, uh, and uh, it does appear that um, users in the UK and the European Union are not affected by the change in terms and conditions, um, but that they were still notified of the change. So the notification was universal, even though uh, the changes are not being brought in in the UK and the EU, no doubt due to the GDPR. Um, but the result of this for WhatsApp has been a, a PR disaster. Um, it seems that millions of users are abandoning the service for rival messaging apps, uh, including Signal and Telegram, um, which have seen very significant increases in number of downloads um, of their apps over the last few weeks, whilst... Um, WhatsApp's downloads have dried up. Uh, so, uh, yeah, PR disaster here. WhatsApp is in full um, PR recovery mode at the moment, full crisis management, uh, and, and has said that it will now delay its rollout of the terms and conditions until the summer, whilst it uh, engages in a PR offensive to uh, try to convince its users that it is not doing anything nefarious, um, and that it takes their privacy very seriously, and um, has been is not doing anything really that it hasn't been doing for years anyway. Um, that might be a difficult sell um, because we've been doing it for ages anyway, and you didn't notice. Doesn't strike me as the most convincing defense. Uh, in PR terms, but we'll see uh, if they manage to sell it. Um, I think that's essentially it with that story. Yeah, so it's a, a big challenge for WhatsApp there, an uphill battle. But the other point is that, um, that, and WhatsApp will, I'm sure, make this plain, that unlike uh, some of their rival apps um, to which users have been flocking, WhatsApp does... in does use end-to-end -end encryption. So um, the actual communications themselves uh, have a greater degree of security and privacy on WhatsApp than uh, they might on some rival apps. Um, so that's probably going to be part of their PR campaign. And it's something that users may not be aware of. Um, and you may actually have the irony of users abandoning a service um, for more privacy and ending up on a service with less privacy. Um, but again, this is something that users of these messaging services need to take a little time to look into and make informed decisions. But I mean, they say that they're going to, they've delayed the change in the terms and conditions. This still doesn't apply to EU members, even in the summer with the delay. No, it does not, so far as I can yeah. see, nor yeah. uh, users in the UK, although uh, you know, post Brexit, anything could happen. Um, but because we, for the time being, still have the GDPR in effectively uh, in operation because it uh, you know, has come into uh, English law after uh, the uh, departure from the EU. Um, yeah, that's not going to apply in the UK and the European Union for the foreseeable future. I wonder how it would still work, though, in California, because we covered in newscasts before 
the um, a change in the legislation in California introducing a kind of GDPR-esque uh, piece of legislation there. And so if this is predominantly affecting American users, which I imagine it is, but it's not impacting the UK and Europe, then um, I wonder how it's sustainable. But Very good question. I don't know, actually, what their plans are in California. something worth looking... Not something that's been covered by the British press, but something... No, no. Yeah, we'll all look into it and keep keep listeners updated. All right. Well, um, I think that is just about everything that we have time for today. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. And um, as ever, please follow us on social media at Media Law Podcast. And thank you for listening. Take care.